All right, cool. We are continuing our series called The Sermon on the Mount as we have worked through and are working through um, Jesus's message that he gave on the Sermon on the Mount, although it's probably, as we mentioned, a compilation that Matthew made. And um, what we have discussed so far is that this is like the king's inauguration message. This is about the king saying, this is my kingdom, and this is what it's like. And this is what it's going to take to be part of my kingdom. And, and so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And then we discuss the Beatitudes, which are not beautiful attitudes. They are uh, uh, the, 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 the signs of blessedness. And bless, blessedness in the Jewish understanding isn't happiness and just feeling good. It is not this God is giving me a gift, but it's actually understanding that you have been planted in a place that will cause you to flourish. And so Jesus was saying, hey, if you want to flourish, this is what it's going to look like. And that's what the Beatitudes are all about. And we covered them really quickly last week. And Beck told me, Nate, you went way too fast. You should have slowed down. And, um, and I, I tried to wave it away. And, um, but at the same time, I understand that we could have spent weeks on just the Beatitudes. But what I wanted to do, though, is that the Beatitudes, I believe, is uh, referenced in every other section from the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever we talk about each section, which is probably one of those things that we often do uh, in preaching, we can't preach um, on three chapters in one message, right? How many of you want to stay here for three days uh, and pound out three chapters of the Bible? You don't want to do that. And so we will pick little bits of the Sermon on the Mount because there are so many quotable quotes. This is packed full of passages that preachers love to use because they are amazing in and of themselves. But what this series is all about is kind of holding it all together. And, and in particular, I think holding in mind this, uh, the Beatitudes as the foundational point for what Jesus is wanting uh, to talk about. And so we will continue on today. But before I do so, I want to talk about Singapore. Who's been to Singapore before? Who's lived in Singapore before? Um, how many people know that Singapore is only 55 years old? <laughs> Singapore is a very young nation. 55? Am I getting it right? Yes, I think so. And um, so to put this in context, uh, my dad was born before Singapore was Singapore. Okay? By the time Nate came around, Singapore is far more like the modern Singapore that we probably, if you visited over the last 10 years, it's rapidly changed. And there's all of these things that happen, and I'm not going to go into the full history. And this is one of the things about Singapore, is that they drum its history into every person. I call it propaganda, but that's okay. I studied Singaporean propaganda for many years, uh, even served in the army for a couple of years. And, um, and, and they really want you to know the foundations of this nation, in particular because when Singapore was formed as an independent nation, apart from British rule, um, it was a little dot in Asia, surrounded by these massive 
countries and had no army, had no infrastructure, but had a lot of potential, but potential that the leadership of the nation needed to identify and to build into. And so, uh, in particular, a lot is credited to the vision of one man, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who saw that Singapore had a great location and uh, its greatest resource is humans, humans' ability, uh, uh, human resources. And so uh, they built Singapore up to be a port country and a also like an air, airport and seaport. Uh, and it would become this like central place in Asia where people want to come. And so what they needed to do is to make Singapore nice enough so that all the rich nations would want to come through. And so they needed to change the culture of Singapore from a little bit of a backwater, uh, not just a little bit, quite a backwater nation, uh, where it was kind of grotty and dirty, into this wonderful island of splendors. And what they did in the meantime is that they produced t-shirts that you can still buy, which has all of these different finds. They did not produce a t-shirt. Someone else said Singapore is a fine nation. Have you seen those t-shirts? I love them. Some people haven't. What is wrong with you guys? But Singapore's a fine nation because you get fined for everything. You get fined for urinating in the elevator. Who the heck does that? You get fined for spitting on a sidewalk. Again, who does that? And, and you get fined for, uh, um, for selling chewing gum. You get fined for everything. And they put all of these restrictions in. Why? because they had a vision of the kind of nation that they needed to be to survive independently. They needed to grow strong, and in order to, grow, uh, to do that, they put in what, you know, when I was studying, and when I came over to Australia and I found out that newspapers are not always owned by the government, uh, I found out that Singapore is actually ranked pretty low on the UN Human Rights Indicator because of all is draconian or somewhat seen as draconian measures. But without those measures, age has helped me to see, without those measures, Singapore would not survive. It would not have uh, the economic success and, and a place of um, uh, uh, prestige that it has today without restrictions and rules of what this nation is going to be like and rules that are often put in place because they need to change the culture and the behaviors of people. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I think that Jesus is telling us some rules and some regulations and some ways that we are meant to behave because he is needing us to have an internal change of our culture and how we see the world. No more urinating in elevators, people, because people don't like that. It's gross. That's not what we do as a modern nation. In the same way, Jesus is saying, this is how our kingdom works. You can't do that anymore because that's bringing corruption. That is bringing filth into this new kingdom and where we are going. When we hold that in mind, hopefully you'll see that, not, that these words that we're reading are not meant to be oppressive, but actually meant to be freeing. Once you have learned the rules of the kingdom and you get them into you, it becomes a place of flourishing as the Beatitudes say. So let's look on 
And let us um, begin to examine the next block of scripture. Uh, Matthew 5 verses uh, 13 says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So let's look at this. And like I mentioned before, right, this is a pretty common passage. If you've been in church before, you've probably heard someone say this, in particular around evangelism. You are the salt of the earth. You need to be, make sure that you're salty and people are going to know that you are Christian, etc. Um, I want to pull back from that a little bit because as you look at this, Jesus was trying to use an analogy, right? He says, you are the salt. He's not calling you salt, literally. He's using it as a metaphor. So what would the people who were listening to this message have thought about uh, with salt? As it turns out, salt has five different key purposes. The first is pretty easy. It is to flavor stuff. And we all know that. And, uh, you know, if you have potatoes without salt, it's not that great. If you make mashed potato and it doesn't have enough salt, you are eating starch. It's like, nah. It's not great. So salt flavors stuff and it makes stuff great. That's really what it does. And so uh, one of the things that people talk about when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, is that we're supposed to flavor the earth. We're supposed to bring flavor. We're supposed to bring vibrancy. We're supposed to bring that pop into people's lives. And it's so important. We're meant, we're meant to flavor everything that we do, which is really cool. But then there's another use of salt, especially in that time, and that is to preserve. They did not have fridges back then. And so things would have spoiled really quickly, except for salt. They would rub salt in the stuff, they would cure stuff, and, and they would preserve it so that it would be able to be eaten days, if not weeks later. Beck bought me some jerky for my birthday, which was a month ago, and I just finished it two days ago. That's the beauty of salt. It preserves things. And so some people then say, you know, when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, it means that you're supposed to preserve the earth. You're supposed to, you know, help things that are important and valuable be continued on. It gets rid of the corruption and, 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 and the deterioration of society. Christians are, men, are meant to bring this preservation quality. And then there's a third function of salt, and that is particularly Jewish, and that is that salt was used in sacrifices. Let me get my notes up. It, in Leviticus 2 verse 13, we can see this. It says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt was put in all offerings that were given to God. And it was to represent, it's not that God had a really like savory taste to his mouth. It, but it's more that the salt represented the covenant. And the salt covenant, the covenant of salt is a beautiful covenant. And the Jewish people would practice this in weddings as well. And I love bringing this in the weddings because it's so visual and it's so wonderful. But basically the bride and the groom uh, would have a little jar of salt each and they would pour it into a larger jar. And this represents the new them. And the whole point is that I have poured my life into this, and I have poured my life into this, and that is now inseparable. 
You cannot go through that little, that big jar of salt and go, that one was mine, and that one was mine, and that one was mine. Oh, oh, yep, yep, no, sorry, that one was yours. You can't work out which grain of salt belonged to each person. Rather, you kind of mesh it all up, and it's salt. It's not my salt. It's not your salt. It's our salt. And so that was the covenant of salt. It was to say we are so in unity and brought together. And that is the covenant of salt that God wants to have with you and every single person. Salvation is not about necessarily just making you a better person, but it's about joining you with Christ, becoming one with Christ in this wonderful picture uh, that marriage can give to us. And so, uh, so when we look at it in that way, salt represents the covenant and salt was used as sacrifice. And so when God, when, sorry, when Jesus said, you are the salt, maybe Jesus is saying that you are a sacrifice. You are part of this sacrifice. You are meant to be offered to God as part of any offering. Isn't that a wonderful picture? But was that the picture that Jesus was necessarily referring to? Because there is also a fourth function, and this one is not so nice. You see, salt was used as a picture of destruction. In the Old Testament, we see this in Psalm 107, verse 34, and in other passages as well. But this one says, A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of his inhabitants. And what this whole psalm was about, or, or this passage uh, in this psalm was about, was that there was going to be this judgment on this land where it was going to be turned from fruitfulness to a salty waste. Some translations say into a dry wasteland because salt absorbs the water and therefore makes the soil uh, unusable for production. So that's part of it. And um, when you read some of the judgment passages in the Old Testament, uh, they were told to salt the land. They, they sprinkled salt on the land as a sign of destruction. And so when we look at that, was Jesus saying that you are the salt of destruction? Was Jesus saying um, uh, that as his disciples, we are to actually bring a level of judgment to this land that we are living in, to this world that we're living in? And I don't think that we're supposed to literally be going around killing people. Don't hear this. We are not starting a holy war. But what I think this is all about is that we are supposed to live in a different kind of way through society, and that brings a level of judgment. We, we, we also need to understand that God is actually not a God who will just willy-nilly accept anything and everything that is given to Him. There is a level, uh, there's a standard, if you will, that God demands, and we are meant to live up to those standards. And if you don't, there is destruction as part of the whole system um, that we are living in. But there is also a fifth... Oh, he's falling asleep. That is that's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad he's comfortable enough. And there's a fifth function, which actually is kind of ironic, um, because the fifth function is that salt was used to fertilize the land. I just said that salt was used to represent the dryness and the lack of production of the land, right? But salt was also used as a fertilizer. <laughs> and salt has this opposite effect if it's used in the right amount. 
If it's used in the right amount, salt actually helps the soil retain moisture. It gets rid of weeds and it promotes growth, which I think is really awesome that Jesus was saying you are the salt of the earth and he could have been meaning that we are meant to be put in places that allows the place to flourish. Sometimes we are put in a place as a sign of judgment of the place and then other times we are put in a place where we bring the flourishing of the place. And so when we look at these five different functions, the flavor, the preservation, the, the sacrifice, the judgment, and um, the, the, the fertilizing, what did Jesus mean? Do we know which one of these five Jesus was meaning when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Anyone want to hazard a guess? All five. Maybe Jesus wasn't saying that you only function in one way. Maybe there's a complexity to what we bring to this earth. And I wonder whether Jesus, uh, in, in preaching this message, he went, wow, you know what? Salt actually represents so many things and has all of these functions. And my people are meant to have all of these functions. However, what I would like to say is that I don't think that the purpose of this particular passage, Jesus was wanting to say that these are your functions, but he was actually referring to something else. Because the passage says, you are the salt of the earth, and immediately, instead of talking about what it means to be the salt of the earth, he then goes on to say, but... If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And this is the interesting thing. Salt cannot actually lose its saltiness. In its pure form, salt does not lose its saltiness. It cannot. And in fact, when you make salt, um, it stays salty. It preserves itself. It's a very non-reactive substance that keeps to itself, if you will. <laughs> but back in those days, because they didn't have the purification methods that we have today, salt was often impure. It would contain other minerals, uh, like from where they would collect these salt uh, crystals from. And so I think that Jesus wasn't so much focusing on the functions, even though I think that he was referring to those functions. He's saying, hey guys, you are actually useful and valuable. That's what you're meant to be. You know, they were saying that salt was even used to pay soldiers sometimes because they were worth their weight in salt. And uh, they would work and they would be paid in salt. That's not to say that salt was super expensive because salt was also super common, but it was so useful that people would always need to have salt. So I think Jesus was saying, you're really common and very valuable at the same time. But at the same time, hang on, if you are impure, you will lose your ability to function. The impurities in your life will cause you to lose your ability to function. And then it's kind of interesting because you then find a sixth use of salt in those days, which is to make roads. It was treated like a common rock. So you either be a salt or you be rock. You either have these wonderful functions or you just be used to be stepped upon. 
That's kind of what Jesus was saying in this passage here. And I don't think that Jesus was necessarily making some kind of judgment, but I think he was talking about linked to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those, uh, blessed are those who are uh, poor in spirit. When you live according to what the Beatitudes is pointing towards, you will be salty. You are salty. Note that Jesus doesn't say, Hey guys, please try to be salty. You're not salty enough. Please try. No, no, no. He's saying you already are salt. You already have these functions inbuilt and you are designed for these things. But if you choose to bind yourself to other things, you will lose the functions that you were created for. And you will try to find fulfillment when all you're good for is to be trampled on the foot. So when you bring this in light of the Beatitudes, this evangelism is a part of this. I do believe it. The preservation, the flourishing, even the judgment, all of those are pictures of us needing to reach our communities. But I think Jesus was trying to tell his disciples who were part of his kingdom, you already are salty, but you keep salty by understanding and living according to the ways of the kingdom. And this, I think, Jesus goes on and he continues in verse 14 and 15, where, sorry, 14 to 16, where he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think this is a different analogy, but the same message. Jesus is now saying, you are the light. You already have this light. Light has this wonderful thing where it's, if it's present, it's present. If it's there, it's there. It's not like, oh, is there light here? No, no, no. You know that there is light because you, things are illuminated and you can see things. However, what you can do with light is that you can hide it. And that's what Jesus was saying here. Instead of the analogy of salt being impure, he's talking about light that is hidden. What is the point of having a light if it's not being used appropriately? What is the point of us purchasing wonderful lights to light up this place and then we put it in a cupboard? It is a waste of money. And Jesus is saying, what would you do with a light? You would place it in a position where it is useful. See, I think both the salt and the light imagery is that God is saying you are really useful to this world. You are actually gifted and positioned and designed to be useful to this world. Each and every single one of us. However, if we lose our purity, if we live according to ways outside of the kingdom, or we hide ourselves, that function and that use becomes lost. And Jesus, I think, is trying to tell us, you want to flourish, you want to bless life. Be salt the way that you were created to be salt. Be light the way that you were created to be light. But then he goes, as Jesus talks about this, he says, so don't hide, right? So what does hiding look like in this analogy of light? What does it mean to hide your light? Jesus is actually really specific here. He says, let your light, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good 
deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good deeds. What is hiding? Lack of deeds. What is shining your light? Good deeds. You see, this is, when I read this, it's a little bit hard for me. Because the thing that Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world, so therefore use your light by doing good deeds. It sounds a little bit transactional to me. It sounds a little bit legalistic to me, right? This whole idea, many of us came to Christianity not because um, uh, you really felt like you needed to earn your salvation. You came to Christianity because a God of grace died on the cross for our sin that we would have eternal life. We quote John 3.16. We don't quote, quote Matthew 5.16. We say, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We don't go around saying, So don't hide your light. But instead, make sure that you shine by doing good deeds. We don't quote that. And so it, it almost feels a little bit disconnected, which brings me to the next section which is verse 17 to 20 to 20. Let me read it, and then we're going to tie it all together. It says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, unto heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I was um, at a, a local Bible college where I uh, lecture, um, and we were having ch a chapel time, and we were discussing the book of James. And one of uh, my fellow lecturers, he actually says, he said this, and it really made me think. He said, I love the book of James, because it sounds most like how Jesus taught. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Now, if you read the book of James, James talks a lot about doing stuff. James talks a lot about behaviors and actions. And I was thinking about that. And, and, and then he said, it stands in contrast to Paul's letters that often talk about the beliefs and the internal systems. And so he said he loves this contrast because sometimes when we only stay in Paul's theology and not the whole Bible, we end up thinking that Christianity is something that happens in here and in here, but not out here. But Jesus and James write very carefully that your behaviors count and your behaviors matter. And I think that this brings us to a really important point when we look at what Jesus is teaching here. He is not giving us a legalistic way of approaching God, but He's giving us a lawful way of approaching God. But somehow in our culture and in our times, we have made a false dichotomy, false opposites of grace and works where we think that if we have grace, we don't need to do anything. Whereas if you are working for stuff, you do not have grace. 
That is a false dichotomy because there is enough in here in the Bible that says that if you are part of the kingdom, you will do certain things. And that's where I want us to come back to the whole Singapore analogy. You want to be Singaporean, you want to be an independent nation, you want to succeed as a nation, then you're going to have to give up certain ways of behaving and acting. And the rest of the world is going to look at you and go, wow, you guys are draconian. But internally, you're going to know that by acting in this way, this is how we become strong. This is how we build our nation. Now, I'm not saying that Singapore is perfect. We left that country. But in terms of this big picture thing of where it was to where it is in just over 50 years, it's crazy. Australia has not progressed that much in the last 50 years. We stayed the same except that we just went and we found lots of minerals in the ground. And we're like, yay, now we're rich. And our culture, we've not worked on it. And we've just flowed with whatever new trend comes about. And we allow people to live and to think in ways that are actually damaging to society, but you're an individual and so you're allowed to do so. Jesus is saying that the kingdom has a specific way of acting. And in G in, this is a crazy book because this is probably one of the most uplifting of the individual and at the same time uplifting of the community. And so sometimes we get a little bit whacked because we only focus on the things that elevate the individual and we forget about the things that elevate the community. And then sometimes, because I've grown up in a more collectivistic and more community-minded place, I can see that we downplay the individual. No, Jesus is saying you uplift the individual in community. And in order for the individual to live in community, there are rules and there are ways of acting. And so Jesus says, if you try to wipe out any of my commands, not good. One other thing that I found really interesting is that I think because we were trying to promote the understanding that we are saved by grace, we often started to read in scriptures that Jesus was standing in opposition to the Pharisees. But I was just reading about church history just over the last week, and I discovered something really interesting. Jesus didn't have beef with the Pharisees. He had beef with how the Pharisees interpreted and understood some of the law. In fact, this historian said Jesus probably really liked the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, in contrast to the Sadducees that we'll talk about in a moment, they actually did not get rich or really powerful because of their position. They actually renounced a lot of that to live all scattered through Israel to teach Israelites how to interpret the law in their current culture. It was the Pharisees that had to teach Israel how to be faithful to God when their temple was destroyed. And they did not have that point of reference anymore. And the Pharisees were the one that said the temple was destroyed, but our God is still God, and we still need to learn how to worship Him. And that was the viewpoint of the Pharisees, and they were trying to bring Israel into faithfulness with God, but they were just slightly misguided. And so Jesus does kind of say to them, woe are you because you kind of missed the point. 
And truly, when Jesus was trying to teach them the correct interpretation, they still stubbornly stood against him, and so that's on them. But it wasn't that Jesus was against having rules about the kingdom. Jesus had rules for the kingdom. And these rules meant that there are ways that we are meant to live in our everyday life that demonstrate the kingdom. When we read about the salt and the light, and Jesus saying, do not let your light be hidden, rather let it be shown. Do your good deeds before man, that they will be brought into the glory of God, that they will see the glory of God. That is what we are meant to be doing. This is how the kingdom operates. A hidden light is not a disciple. A hidden light is not a person who's actually understood the blessedness of what it means to be part of the kingdom. We don't get to come to Jesus and say, I want salvation, but don't get me to do anything else. Jesus says you're standing outside the kingdom still, missy, or mister, or whoever you are. You don't get to come and tell me. Can you imagine going to God and saying, can I make a bargain with you? I want a free gift, but not the meal it comes with. Anyone go to Macca's and say, I don't want your happy meal, I want your happy toy. You're not getting, no, 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 it comes together. The free gift comes as part of the whole package. If you are, and this is what it's like to be in any nation on the face of the planet. If I'm in Singapore and I want to be Singaporean, I live according to all the rules of Singapore, not just the ones I like. If I'm living in Australia, I'm living according to all the rules of Australia, not just the ones that I like. But how dare we come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, I'm going to pick and choose what I like. I want this to be like a subway bar. None of you silly jalapenos. None of your tomatoes, just give me the meatballs. No, you go to Jesus, and Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. And we say, thank you, because it's the greatest gift that has ever been given to us. But it includes a change in the way that we live. Let me put it this way. Jesus did not intend for Christianity to only be about what we believe. Jesus intended Christianity to be about how we behave in society. And I think that we are at a really pivotal point and our beliefs instruct our behaviors. But somehow we've been okay with saying, I love Jesus internally, but not I love Jesus externally. We've been okay with like, I love all that God is internally, but not I love all that God is externally. We've made our faith private and about me when Jesus says no. So Jesus isn't abolishing the law, he's redirecting the law. And maybe we'll come back to this next week and talk a little bit more about it because I think if you literally want to live according to the Old Testament, you'll miss the plot. No more crabs and shellfish for you guys, especially all of you from Cook Islands. No more seafood. But I think that there are some really important things that we need to consider here. See, a part of why I got so excited about praying for Dave and Sim is because I think that they are living as a light. They are actually doing something. I'm not trying to downplay how other people live, but I think there's a great example. 
where, you know, not just us get to see how wonderful they are, but now their friends in their workplaces will go, oh, why are you doing this? Why are you giving up promotion? Why are you giving up your time? Why are you, why are you looking after these kids that, you know, I really hate this, but are not even yours? Maybe it's because we, we, we believe this. Maybe it's because we know how much God has given to us that I'm willing to wholly trust that everything that he says is worth living by. And I think that if we as a church catch a, catch a whole of this, how different would we look? That the media would not be able to pick on all the things that we are saying no to and all of our old beliefs, and they always will probably do that, but they cannot fight against the benefits that we have brought to this world. In studying church history, there was one thing that popped up that I loved. In church history, wherever there were missionaries, there were less deaths, there was less slavery, there was less oppression. No one talks about that anymore. Maybe because we've gotten a little bit settled in our hearts and in our lives about what our Christianity is meant to look like. I think Jesus' inauguration message was a call to action. And we're meant to understand it through the lens of the cross, guys. Remember, we talked about that last week. Jesus already gave, and it's out of that that he now invites us to live in a different way. Can we just get the musos up? We're not going to spend long here because I think I just want to be praying for you guys. Can I just put this call out? If there's a sense in you that goes, man, I need to learn how to live for God, do it. You already are salt and you already are light. God's already created you to be a difference and to live as a difference. If you want clarity, great, come tonight, we'll pray, and hopefully God will reveal something greater about that. Please do. Let's be deliberate about this. Let's not let the last two months and then next year just kind of flow into like, it's post-COVID, I'm going to live for myself now. No, don't be stupid. We're not pagans. We have a God that we serve, and he's saying this is the time to let your light shine. This is a time for the, you to bring hope into the world that you live in. There is so much that the church is meant to be doing in this next season. And I pray that each and every one of us are willing to say yes to everything that God is saying, no matter what the cost. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are you when you are persecuted and reviled, for so they did so to the prophets of old. Blessed are you when you live according to his ways. Can I just pray? Dear Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your great and amazing grace. 
I thank you that we don't need to read these words through the light of how do we gain entry into the kingdom, but rather we can read this through the light of you have already invited us and brought us into your kingdom. I pray that God that we as a church will be known for what we do in the community as well as what we believe. I pray that God that we cannot divorce our beliefs from our behaviors, but God, I pray that we will have the boldness and the courage to do the things that you have called us to. I pray that we don't lose sight of what it means to be part of your kingdom. This is not about me, this is about us. And even less than about us, it really is about you and what you have seen and what you have purposed in your heart. And I thank you that you are a good God that we can trust, that we can trust that you have the best for us. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.